You are listening to the 919 Podcast, the only podcast telling the stories of the over 1.5 million people living within and transforming the triangle. I'm your host, John Carter. Okay, this week I had the opportunity to speak with David Rudolph over the phone. If you don't know the name, allow me to fill you in. David is a defense lawyer and founding partner at Rudolph Widenhouse. But unless you're a fan of law firms, you probably still wouldn't know who David is. However, if you follow the news, you might have heard of the Michael Peterson case or watched the documentary about the case on Netflix called The Staircase. Essentially, in 2001, a woman named Kathleen Peterson was found dead in her home at the bottom of the staircase. Her husband was the only other person home at the time and was accused of murder. The trial was fascinating and received national attention because of the uncertainty and the evidence that was brought forth. And fair warning, there are spoilers ahead, so if you don't want to know what happened, stop listening right now, watch The Staircase, read about it, and then circle back to this podcast. Okay, moving on. Okay, so it resulted in Michael being convicted, even though there seemed to be reasonable doubt that he actually didn't murder Kathleen Peterson. But eight years later, it was revealed that fake evidence on the part of the prosecution had been brought forward. So, a retrial happens. And after several years, Michael enters a guilty plea and is released. It's crazy, super interesting, and there are a lot of theories about what actually happened that night. So the reason David Rudolph is joining the podcast is that he was actually the defense lawyer in the case and represented Michael Peterson during the trial. Also, this all takes place in Durham, North Carolina. My wife and I watched The Staircase. I knew David had to be on the the podcast to share about his experiences with the case and thoughts about living and working in the Triangle. Okay, this takes place over the phone, so it's a bit scratchy, but bear with us. Turn up the volume on your headphones or car, and you should be fine. Again, I'm hanging out with David Rudolph. Let's get started. Okay, I'm on the phone with David Rudolph, a defense lawyer and founding partner at Rudolph Weidenhouse Law Firm in Charlotte, North Carolina. David has had a long career in the field involved in some high-profile cases, including the Michael Peterson trial uh, taking place in Durham. So, David, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day. I know you have a busy schedule and joining the 919 podcast. I appreciate your uh, having me on. Yes. So, David, I can't wait to talk more about your time, the Triangle, the Staircase documentary, all of that. But first, can you share more about yourself for people who are hearing about you for the first time? Well, sure. Uh, I, uh, I actually moved down to North Carolina in 1978 uh, to teach at the law school at Chapel Hill. Uh, I taught there full-time for four years. And then uh, formed my own firm, uh, which initially had its office in Durham, uh, and then uh, moved to Chapel Hill in 86. Uh, and then in uh, 2007, uh, we moved the firm down to Charlotte. We had a a branch office in Charlotte, and, uh, and I moved down to Charlotte and closed up the Capitol office last year. So uh, that's sort of the thumbnail sketch of my time in uh, in North Carolina. And so you're not originally from North Carolina. You you said you came down. You were living in the Northeast somewhere. I was. I actually I uh, started. I went to NYU Law School uh, and uh, then worked as a public defender in the South Bronx uh, 
for several years uh, before moving to North Carolina uh, and uh, decided I wanted to try to teach. Uh, got a job uh, uh, to uh, found and operate the criminal law clinic at UNC Law School, and so I moved down in 1978 to do that. Yeah, so you originally were more of a teacher um, before, I guess, you went back, or were you ever in the courts to begin with, or you, you wanted to do teaching right after that? No, I actually, uh, initially I was I was a public defender in the South Bronx, which is about as in the courts as you can be. Uh, you know, I, I had, uh, you know, literally hundreds of clients. Uh, you know, we were in a part of the South Bronx that uh, that was sort of full of burnt-out buildings and uh, drug addicts and uh, various other uh, and sundry uh, characters. Uh, and so did that for uh, a couple of years. Um, and... Uh, I then decided that I wanted to try teaching. I wasn't sure if that would be something I would like, uh, but decided I would try it. Wanted to do clinical teaching where I would actually have students going into the courtroom with me, uh, learning uh, as they represented people in misdemeanors. Uh, and that was that was fine for four years, but I missed the courtroom myself. Uh, and uh, I had a, uh, uh, a colleague at Duke by the name of Don Beskin, uh, who was also ready to start practice, so Don and I uh, opened up Beskin and Rudolph in Durham in 1982. Oh, wow. So you were teaching at UNC, but you chose to, uh, I guess, befriend a Duke person, right? I did, actually. It, was, it wasn't easy. And we never agreed on basketball, uh, but uh, on, most, on most other things, we were able to agree. Awesome. So, you know, just looking over your career, it seems you, you definitely focused your efforts and time on cases where the person was, you know, wrongly accused or the government tend to overstep. So why this focus? You know, there's a lot of different areas for defense, uh, being a defense lawyer. Well, you know, uh, actually my focus has sort of shifted over time. So uh, up through the time of the Michael Peterson case, I had pretty much focused on criminal defense work and, and primarily on white-collar defense and murder cases, although I had handled a few civil cases uh, that just sort of came my way and were interesting. But after the after the verdict in, in the Peterson case, uh, which, which was, uh, to say the least, disappointing to me um, and really, uh, really had an adverse effect on, on my personal outlook on, on what I was doing, uh, I sort of shifted my focus uh, to handling cases of people who had been wrongfully convicted, exonerated, but had spent decades in prison. Uh, and that started with the Alan Gale case, uh, which uh, actually has a fair amount of infamy in North Carolina since um, it led to the open discovery law uh, that was adopted uh, in, the, in around 2007 or 8, I think. Um, and uh, and just started doing those cases and and fell into that niche and pretty much have focused on those since then. Although I have I have tried several criminal cases uh, in the interim, uh, but they but they need to be sort of interesting and and out of the ordinary. Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not taking uh, you know you sort of your run of the mill drug case the way I used to. Gotcha. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk all about David's time in the Triangle and working on the Peterson case. 
Okay, so it's 2001. You get a phone call, I'm guessing, from Michael asking you to represent him. And I, I always wonder about this. You know, I you have no clue what you're getting yourself into. That's absolutely true. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I, I had I had no idea that 15 years later I would still be uh, still be representing Michael in court. But um, actually, the call came from Michael's brother Bill, uh, who is a lawyer in uh, uh, Nevada. Uh, he had contacted a number of lawyer friends of his in various places and had gotten my name uh, from various people uh, and. Uh, as a result of that call, he asked me to come up and, and meet with Michael and the family. Uh, and so uh, thereafter, I drove up with Ron Jarrett, my investigator, uh, and met with Michael, met with the kids, um, met with Bill, uh, had a long discussion about, you know, what had happened and what the facts were as best they understood them. Uh, and uh, after that, agreed to, to represent Michael. Wow. So at the time, were you were you still living? It's 2001, so you're in Charlotte at this point, right? No, no. In 2001, I was still living in Chapel Hill. Um, oh, okay. So okay. my 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 office was in Chapel Hill. I was living in Chapel Hill. Uh, I didn't actually move. My, I had an office in Charlotte, uh, but I didn't actually move myself to Charlotte until 2007. Okay, that I always wondered that because uh, you know we see you in in the documentary in an apartment. Uh, I was always wondering, like, wow, I wonder if, you know, he either commuted or he basically had to do a short-term uh, living uh, Actually, you know, cities apart. You know, the truth is that when you're involved in a trial, and particularly a trial that got as complicated as the Peterson trial, you're really living in a bubble. Uh, and uh, we had, I don't know, 30-some-odd boxes, bankers' boxes of discovery materials uh, and our files. Uh, Ron Jarrett was was from Charlotte, so he was going to need to stay up in the triangle uh, with me. Uh, and it's just very hard to work on a case when you have three, you know, uh, teenage boys running around, uh, and you're trying to, uh, you know, you get home from court and you're trying to, to work on uh, what you need to do for the next day. So uh, we actually took an apartment uh, right near South Point. Uh, Ron and I, it was, I guess, uh, I think it was month to month. It ended up being a lot longer at least than we thought. Um, and, uh, we moved all our boxes into the living room. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ron had his bedroom, I had my bedroom, and, and the living room served as our war room. And, uh, <laughs> and that's pretty much, pretty much where we hung out for the, for the length of the trial. Gotcha. So, spoilers for those who haven't seen it. You can pause it now or skip ahead about a minute. But Michael was eventually, convicted of murder, even though there's definitely seen reasonable doubt. Uh, David, my wife and I were practically yelling at the TV. We were like, how they, <laughs> how could they convict him? Uh, but then years later, you know, there was a lot of, it was found that a lot of the prosecution's evidence was fake, um, which, of course, ended with Michael getting to the Alfred plea. So, and you've mentioned this before, um, but how how did that, especially when he was convicted, how did that affect you know your ego or you mentioned earlier your view of the justice system yeah well you know uh i've been through many many trials and and you know had guilty verdicts as well as as not guilty verdicts uh but usually uh i have a pretty good idea of how the trial has gone uh and so 
you know, when a client gets convicted, it's not generally a complete shock because you sort of have gotten a sense during the trial that things probably weren't going very well. In this case, uh, the trial went much, much better than we could have ever hoped it would go. Um, and, and, you know, normally there are good days and bad days in any trial. We had very, very, very few bad days and many, many, many good days. Uh, and so it wasn't just myself and the, and the rest of the defense team. Uh, everyone who was in the courtroom who was reasonably, um, uh, objective, you know, the media who covered it day to day, the court officers, uh, you know, the court clerks, no one really expected a guilty verdict. You know, once we found that blow poke, um, I think everybody expected that the worst we get would be a hung jury, uh, you know, based primarily on the, the character assassination, really, uh, of, of Michael. Uh, so when that, when that guilty verdict came in, it was, it was truly shocking, not just to me, but I think to a lot of people in the courtroom. Uh, and it did shake my faith. It, it took my faith in, in my ability to read what was happening in a courtroom. Uh, it took my faith in, in my own ability to communicate, uh, effectively, uh, what I thought was obvious. Uh, and it took me a long time to, uh, you know, to sort of, uh, uh, gain back uh, some perspective on the case and, and realize how devastatingly uh, bad the Germany evidence was, the bisexuality evidence, and the blood spatter evidence, because that was really the, those were the three sort of linchpins of, of the prosecution's case. Uh, and, and you know, I thought I had done a, a reasonably good job uh, uh, establishing the, the doubt on all three, uh, but I don't, I think I underestimated the impact of the, uh, of the Germany evidence and the, uh, and the bisexuality. Right. I was, but I mean, in the end, uh, maybe not the happiest ending, but certainly a better ending than Michael being in jail is he got to go free, uh, eventually and be with his family. So, uh, maybe some redemption there for sure. Yeah, no, it, that, well, it certainly felt redemptive in the sense that I was able to establish that the blood spatter evidence, which some of the jurors really, if they can be believed, relied upon heavily, was a sham. Uh, and being able to establish that uh, and that Dwayne Deaver's testimony was, as Judge Hudson found, perjury, uh, that, that was a redemptive moment for me, tempered by the fact that my client had spent eight years in prison that he really shouldn't have spent. Right. Um, I got to ask, nothing against Michael or his family, of course, but if you had known how this would have turned out, you think you still would have taken the case? Boy, you know, that's, that's a tough question <laughs> to answer. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, if you had asked me that in, in 2014, I probably would have said no. Uh, but, you know, given what's happened since, we were able to negotiate the Alford plea and put this case to bed. And then with the, with the fact that the documentary has been picked up and broadcast as widely as it has, I actually am very happy uh, that I was able to be in part of this and, and stuck with it. 
because I think there are really important lessons that, that people are drawing, not from me particularly, but from the documentary uh, and seeing what went on and, and how how things were were presented. Uh, and, and I think it's opened up a lot of people's eyes uh, to some of the problems in the criminal justice system. So for that, uh, I am I am very happy. That's a good point. Well, I, I want to move on to just talking about the triangle here in a second, but two more questions. One, you know, this is all documented in the Staircase documentary on Netflix, but what was it like being filmed by a film crew all those years? And I always wonder, how did this French film company find out about this case happening in Durham? Well, let me answer that uh, in reverse order. They, they had uh, contact. They had just finished uh, winning an Academy Award uh, for a documentary called Murder on a Sunday Morning. Uh, and they were looking for another case to follow in the United States. So they called around and got my name, not not in particular about the Peterson case, but just as a lawyer who might know of cases that were interesting. Uh, and I had just recently picked up Michael's case, and I said, well, uh, you know, I don't know about other cases, but I just picked up this case. I don't know if you find it interesting or not, but here's what it is. Uh, and, and they came and talked with me and talked with Michael, and, and that's sort of how the whole thing got started. It was quite quite a, a matter of coincidence and happenstance, not something that, that I reached out for or that Michael reached out for. I know some people think that, that Michael somehow, uh, uh, you know, engineered that, and, and that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, we literally had no idea before they called us. Right. So uh, that that's the answer to your first question. And, Tom, and, and now I've forgotten your second question. I mean, what was it like being filmed by – than all ah, these yes. years and being comfortable around the camera. Well, um, you know, I was reasonably comfortable around cameras before this, just from some of the other cases I had handled, uh, and, you know, including the Ray Carruth case, which was on court TV and, you know, 24-7 coverage in the courtroom. Uh, this was a little bit different in that uh, they were covering me in private meetings and, and in my office. Uh, so that was a little bit strange at first and took a little getting used to but you know you sort of acclimate to whatever your circumstances are and after you know the first few weeks uh the film crew sort of faded into the background they were very respectful they never interrupted they never you know said stop you know redo that uh you know there were no you know extra takes it was just filmed as it was happening and because of that it really wasn't disruptive in any sense you know if they had been trying to get particular you know things said uh, and were trying to to guide the conversation that I don't think that would have been workable uh, but they weren't uh, they were sort of fly on the wall uh, and and after a while that's how they were sort of treated by by everyone gotcha well we're going to talk about the triangle here but uh, there's one scene where I can I feel like I really can relate to you just being in business and around uh, presentations a lot I can I just feel your frustration so it's like before the trial begins and you're going through your presentation with the media person at the courthouse and this guy seems as though he's I'm I'm sure he's, he's very confident it just seems in the moment he's never worked with PowerPoint before and you really don't hide the fact that you're mad what's it like watching yourself now years from years later <laughs> well uh, there's actually some humor in it now probably probably not for the object of my 
pirate. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, at the time, as you can imagine, the pressure is enormous. You know, it's the night before. I've worked hard to try to get this opening statement in shape and, and coordinate it with these PowerPoints. And so when it's not going well and then we have a fire drill and, you know, telephones going off, um, it just, you know, the tension just sort of builds and builds and it's sort of like a, you know, a bottle of uh, champagne. It just sort of popped at some point. Uh, so at the time, there was no humor in it whatsoever. Looking back on it now, uh, and a number of people have commented on this on, on social media, uh, there's a certain there's a certain uh, comedy to it. You know, it's almost like a Keystone Cop sort of thing, where you know first the phone rings and and then the cop you know sticks his head in and talks about a fire, and then the phone rings again, and you know, <laughs> then the wrong slide goes up, and you know it's it's. If, if you watch it with a sense of humor, uh, it it it, uh, it has a whole different feel to it. Well, I just had to ask you because that's for sure one of my favorite scenes. And you're right, it does seem almost staged. <laughs> just all the ridiculousness. But all right, well, I want to get your thoughts on the triangle. So, you know, I was watching the documentary and my wife would go, oh, that's our exit. He's driving by our exit. So what's it like practicing law and living in an area like this at the same time? Um. You know, uh, it really, it really wasn't anything unusual. Uh, I never got any sort of hostility from people. Indeed, yeah, you know, I think given the coverage of the trial once it started, I think a lot of people had their doubts uh, about the prosecution and about Michael's guilt during the trial. Now, I think that changed, to be fair. I think most people, once the jury came back and, and came back guilty, I think people's attitudes changed or hardened, uh, and and so you know I think certainly prior to the documentary airing, most people in the triangle probably would have thought Michael was guilty. I, hopefully that's changed somewhat now, uh, but I never I never experienced any any uh, blowback from that. Uh, no one was rude to me or or, or uh, you know uh, unpleasant to me with with probably the exception of, of Candace. Uh but uh no one from the triangle uh was ever was ever the least bit um uh put off by what I was doing. And I think most people recognize that I was I was conducting myself in an ethical way, in a in an appropriate way. So uh the major problem is, you know, trying a case when you're in a bubble uh and living at home and, and I solved this by by taking the apartment with Ron Jurette, uh and and immersing myself in that bubble. Right. I always wonder, you know, how do you separate? You know, you're you're in the triangle. You're in South, I guess, around South Point. But how do you separate the two? You know, you have your your whole life at that point is the case. But you're also, do you have a work life balance during that time? Or are you able to enjoy uh, going out in Durham uh, or Chapel Hill? No, no. There's there, honestly, there is no work life balance. Uh, I mean, even even when I wasn't in the apartment on weekends and I was home, I'm working. You know, I'm at my office. Uh, you know, during the trial, any any conscientious lawyer is going to be working, you know, 18 hours a day and getting as much sleep as he can muster. Uh, you know, sure, we would go out to dinner, uh, you know, after court or lunch, 
uh, and people would, you know, would stop by and say hello or whatever. Uh, but it really, it, it didn't really affect our day-to-day life because our day-to-day life was completely turned upside down by the trial. <laughs> no kidding. So, yeah. Gosh. Well, um, okay. Uh, want to get your thought on this and then wrapping up, but so you know of the owl theory, which is an owl uh, might have killed Kathleen Peterson. What do you think of that? Yes. Well, let me let me correct the theory slightly for you. Um, okay. It's not that the owl killed Kathleen. It's that the owl inflicted the initial wounds to Kathleen's scalp. Okay. Uh, and, and that makes it sound a little less silly uh, than the owl killed her. Uh, but, sure. uh, you know, the evidence, I think, is is pretty persuasive that, at least a couple of those wounds on her head are very consistent with the talons of a barred owl. What I have learned about barred owls, and it's B-A-R-R-E-D, since is that they are very aggressive towards humans or can be. There have been many, many, many uh, recordings of owl attacks on YouTube and various other places. Uh, You know, there were owls in that area. Indeed, several people have commented that when we're running our sound test uh, in one of the episodes, maybe the first episode, you can actually hear barred owls in, in the background on two occasions. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, for me as a defense lawyer, the issue really is not did the owl do this. The issue for me is, is that a plausible explanation right, for right. how those initial wounds were inflicted on her scalp outside the house you know, walking outside to set up some of those decorations for Christmas uh, after she left the pool area. Uh, and then, you know, once those wounds are inflicted, then she comes running in the house uh, and, and you know, the, the scene unfolds from there. Uh, and I think she did hit her head uh, falling down several times inside the stairway. Uh, but I, but I, but I do think the initial wounds were were inflicted by an owl, and I think uh, no one disputes that the reason she died was because of loss of blood. Uh, right. She did not die as a result of blunt force trauma. There was no skull fractures. There was no brain injury. It was pure and simple. She bled out, uh, yeah. and uh, and and so for me, uh, certainly the theory that the owl inflicted those initial uh, wounds on her scalp is is a lot more plausible than a blowpoke. Yeah. Well, I had to ask that. Uh, of course, I, I heard of that after I finished watching the documentary and heard uh, that a few different places is really interesting. But okay, I'm about to put you on the spot. Rapid fire some questions. But favorite restaurant in the Triangle? Oh, geez, that it's been a while. The hardest question um, I've asked so far. <laughs> it, that is the hardest question. Uh, my favorite restaurant, if I could think of their names, I'd tell you. Uh, or maybe not the favorite, but a favorite of yours, and maybe one that you've been to lately. You know, I'm just blanking on the names of restaurants. You know, you're, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about a murder case. Yeah, I'd say it's on you. Yeah. Focus on restaurants. Okay, we'll move on. Favorite activity to do in the area when you were trying to relax from the case? Uh, sitting in my backyard, listening to the to the uh, stream that ran through the property. Awesome. 
Most underrated thing about Durham. Most underrated thing? Mm-hmm. Um, now, the most uh, underrated thing is probably uh, what a cool place it has turned into. Uh, <laughs> back then, uh, the most underrated thing about Durham was its potential. <laughs> um, best thing about the Triangle? Uh, it's just a great place to raise a family. Uh, you know, the, the people who live there, the level of education, the, uh, the, uh, colleges and universities and what they offer. Uh, it, it really is, I, I can't think of a better place to raise a family. Awesome. Well, we'll, we'll probably end on that then. David, I really uh, enjoyed, I know you didn't have a hand in maybe making the documentary, but sure, you were a, you were a star person in it, but I really enjoyed that. Uh, I think, you know, in some ways, the the trial put Durham in the area on the map for people who maybe weren't familiar with North Carolina before. So, um, anyway. and I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna be speaking uh, at the Carolina Theater uh, on October third. Oh wow! Uh, about is that the open? Case. Is that yeah, open? well, it's, 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 they'll be they'll be selling tickets, um, uh, and I think I'll be joined by one of the producers of the of the documentary so uh, if you're uh, if your listeners are interested uh tickets should be going on sale relatively soon wow well maybe i'll be able, be able to meet you there that'd be really cool but that'd be, that'd uh, be great david thanks so much i'm not going to take up any more of your time i know you're busy but thanks for taking time and joining the 919 podcast take care bye-bye You just listened to David Rudolph talk about his experiences on the Michael Peterson case and living in the triangle, as well as his thoughts about the Netflix documentary, The Staircase. If you like the pod, subscribe and get notified of new episodes the moment they are published. And if you enjoy these episodes every week, leave a five-star rating on iTunes. It really means a lot. You can keep up with me and the pod throughout the week on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The919Podcast. And until next time, thanks for listening.